our guest this afternoon is Representative Sean Caston of the Illinois 6th District. How many people are from the 6th District around here? Wow, you got a pretty good crowd here. <laughs> Representative Caston's uh, district is located in the suburbs of West Chicago, and he's serving as a freshman in the 116th Congress. As a scientist, clean energy entrepreneur and author, and now a member of Congress, Sean Caston has dedicated his life to fighting climate change. In Congress, Sean currently serves in the House Financial Services Committee, the Science, Space, and Technology Committee, and the Select Climate Crisis Committee and is a co-chair in the New Dems Climate Change Task Control Task Force. I could read his entire bio, but I want to save time for him to get up here because there's a whole lot going on um, as a scientist, as an entrepreneur, um, and just an all-around nice guy. Um, I am very, very excited to present Congressman Sean Caston. Thank you so much, Jackie. I was, I was saying to people at the start, everybody's like, I'm so looking forward to your remarks. And I'm sitting there saying, I'm really looking forward to my remarks as well, because I have no idea what I'm going to say. But, uh, but what I think is always helpful, at, I mean, this is, this is weird. I've never, ever run for any elected office before the one I have right now. I never ran for high school student government. I never took a poli-sci class in school. Um, and that makes me, in many ways, kind of typical of this new freshman class we have. And I think one of the few things, one of the few good things that our current president has done is inspired an awful lot of people to get more civically engaged. Um, but the, what I find getting in, you know, after the course of a year, and I think sometimes the most useful thing I can do at events like this, is to try to remove a little bit of the curtain because what's, what's perceived of what happens in Washington is a function of, of what makes for good TV sound bites and clips. And it has, it has oftentimes a, a wild disparity from the reality of what's going on. And, you know, we're in a very political moment, and it's hard for me to say this in a totally nonpartisan way, but I'm gonna, I, I want to do my best because I think it's... I think the differences are stark and are both a, a cause for sort of more optimism than we might otherwise have about, the, about the, where we are as a country. The, the first thing I want to point out is that... So, you know, I ran... Spent my whole career in... First as a doing basic science and engineering, then as a CEO of a couple of clean energy companies, and ran for office because we'd sold our company, and I and I wasn't happy with the the fact that we had a president who denied basic science. And and I will tell everybody what I what I told some high school students last week. Everybody says, "How do you deal with people who don't don't believe in climate change?" And my answer that I would ask all you to take away is treat them with the same amount of respect you give to someone who doesn't believe in gravity, because they because they've earned it. <clears throat> We didn't, we didn't get into this problem democratically, and we don't need to presume that we can't move until the majority of the American public understands it. Um, we just have to act. The, and, and I say that, I mean, it's, it's weird that that's an applause line, right? Because if you work as a scientist, you don't sit there saying, well, turns out most of the lab doesn't agree with me, right? If you work... If you work in a business environment, you don't sit there and say, well, I'm the CEO, so I have to wait and find out what the majority of my employees think I should do, right? And, and, and it's, it seems weird to say it in a political environment, but there are things that we have to, we have to do. However, the, the specifics of who I am are obviously unique in the same way we're all unique. But, but in general, my experience is very typical of this new freshman class. 
because so many of the folks in our freshman class also never took a poli-sci class, also never ran for office before, also felt compelled to act. And whether that's Johanna Hayes, who uh, was the National Teacher of the Year, or um, or Donna Shalala, who ran HHS and was the head of University of Miami um, before deciding to run for office, um, Abby Spanberger, who was a CIA agent, you know, I could go on down the list. D- Dean Phillips, who was the CEO of Talenti Ice Cream, which is super tasty. Um, and all these people who decide to run, who, br- who bring, I think, perhaps not as much breadth as someone who comes out of the state legislature, but a lot more depth. And the Democrats flipped the House because they elected people who spoke to where I think the majority of the country and where those sort of centrist values are. Um, and, and if you want to understand what's really going on in Washington, recognize that, that Speaker Pelosi who I have tremendous respect for, and I don't mean this in any way to be at all cynical. Her power derives from being in the majority. And the most powerful people in the country right now are the people who are represented by people like me. Because the way that the way that the that Speaker Pelosi loses her majority is by bringing bills to the floor that are going to be really hard votes for people who represent districts like Illinois 6th. And so what we've done this cycle is not appeal to the far left or the far right, but we've done things like, you know, like I think the most, probably one of the most important bills we passed was H.R. 1 that would provide public financing of campaigns, get rid of gerrymandering of districts, um, would finally do something I would submit to close the gap between Congress's 22% favorability rating and 90% incumbency ratio, Um, (laughs) right? Because that's basically a function of campaign finance and gerrymandering. We passed that. That is overwhelmingly popular. We passed universal background checks for guns. Overwhelmingly popular. We passed bills to um, finally return to Medicare the right to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies for the prices of drugs. Overwhelmingly popular. We, uh, We passed a bill to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. Overwhelmingly popular. And and these are popular with Republicans, you know, with, with Democrats across the spectrum. The, we haven't even had a vote on Medicare for All, whatever you think of that. We haven't had a vote on the Green New Deal, whatever you think of that. And it's consistent with the fact that the majority of the country is, is essentially now represented by a party, which is, from my perspective, so ideologically diverse as to be almost unwieldy. Um, you know, the fact that you can go in one party from AOC to Dan Lipinski and still be inside one party, and which is, and like, you know, you hear all the Dems in disarray, and, and there's, and whatever, wherever you are in that ideological spectrum, if you're, you know, assuming you're not to the right of that point for the purpose of this example, um, you are represented by somebody who is doing exactly what Schoolhouse Rock said government is supposed to do, Right? They have things they believe in. They're arguing for them passionately. They're not saying, I'll just do whatever leadership tells me to do. And the press, unfortunately, covers that as Dems in disarray. But I would submit to you that the much bigger problem going on right now is not the ideological diversity of the Democratic caucus, but the ideological homogeneity of the Republican caucus. Because for all of us who sort of won those center seats and expanded the zone of, the, of, of, of one party... That came at expense of another country that's really of another party that really lost the middle, and the I was you know so here now we all get in all of us freshmen. Um, Brad Schneider said to me the other the other day he said he said you guys have had kind of a weird first year and I said I don't know Brad this is my definition of normal you know. <laughs> 
we've been here for one year. You know, we we come in in the wake of the longest shutdown in U.S. history. Um, we get the government back open. We say we're not going to do that again. So we pass all the appropriations, bust our butt to pass all the appropriations by June, which is faster than they've been done in almost 20 years. Um, we repeal the 2002 Iraq War authorization. We might get a constitutional amendment because we got the Equal Rights Act coming through. And oh yeah, we impeach the president. Uh, are there other ways to do this job? I don't know. That's that's the only experience that I have. Um, but but what we've done in that time has been, I would submit to you, consistent with what the overwhelming majority of the American public wants us to do. And and I would further submit to you that. Both parties fundamentally believe in democracy. And what I mean by that is that if you, if you believe that an educated electorate that all has the right to vote and participates in the right to vote will consistently make the right decisions, um, then you believe in democracy. What do you do if you don't share those views? Right? And, 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 you know, that's pretty frightening if you don't share those views. As an as a, as a African-American friend of mine is fond of saying, the realization of Martin Luther King's dream is a nightmare for white men of low character. Right? So what do you do? And the fact that we are at a moment where one party in Moss decided not to hear evidence before a trial says that one party in Moss decided we don't really want information out there in the American public. The fact that, that, that 183 people voted against the Equal Rights Amendment last week, which says nothing other than, than we will not discriminate on the basis of gender, that was pretty weird, right? That was pretty partisan. The fact that the Equality Act to provide equal rights to the LGBT community was pretty partisan. The fact that the, 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 the bill to essentially address, to, to undo the Shelby versus Holder decision and fix the preclearance so that we can, we can get back to the Voting Rights Act and make sure everybody has the right to vote, that was a pretty partisan vote. That tells you at core that both parties believe in democracy. It's just that one of them is not happy with the outcome of democracy. And so what's, you know, so what's fundamentally on the ballot going forward is whether or not you believe in that. Now, I started telling that in the context of all the history because I don't, <clears throat> I don't think of myself as particularly political. I still really don't. Um, but when we, the, the first vote we, the first eight, nine votes we took were to get government back open. And the speaker sat us all down on the, the first meeting we had as a caucus, and she said, I don't care why you ran, I don't care what you told the people in your district, we have to get the government open. Do, this is not the time to amend. We know that the Senate voted with 92 votes to pass a bill, bill to fully fund the government, and it failed to pass the Paul Ryan-led House. Do not change a word. Just give it back to them, because there's 800,000 people who aren't getting paid every day. We keep the government closed. There's air traffic controllers who have to do their job who aren't getting paid. There's people at the EPA who are not getting paid and are going to have to go get food stamps if we don't get this open, except that we're not providing funding for food stamps. Like, there's a whole lot of... Get the government open. Do not check all of your political issues at the door, which we did. And we sent the exact same bill that the Senate two weeks earlier had voted on with 92 votes, sent it back to the Senate, and it got 52 votes. Needed 60 to pass. I'll give you three guesses how that split on party line basis. Um, we then 
pass that exact same bill back in, in whole and in part, little pieces, can we get little things finally done? The reason it changed was because Trump had a temper tantrum about a wall. And, um, and finally the temper tantrum ended and it got 100 votes. And in the meantime, we had this shutdown and all this disruption that happened to all these lives. And I, and I pulled Mr. Clyburn, the, the majority whip aside, and I said, look, I'm new to this job. I don't want to be partisan. But how, do you, how would you suggest that I look these folks in the eye? Because if, if, if you and I have totally different ideologies and disagree on everything, but you're consistent, I know how to work with you. If you can go from 92 votes to 52 votes to 100 votes, what is the consistent ideology? Like, how do, we, how do we work with this? And what Mr. Clyburn said is he said, we're at this very sad moment in American history where a once great party is dying from the middle out. And it's very hard to redeem when you can't, when you can't come back from the middle out because the, the folks who barely won last cycle, the Will Hurds of the world, who's a decent guy, knows that for him to get reelected, he has to double down on his base. Um, I, have a, I have a friend who was a Republican state senator in Arizona who was asked to consider running for the Jeff Flake seat. And he said, I can't do it because I, the only way I know to win would be to say things that I don't want my grandchildren to hear me say. Right? And that's, and that's unfortunate because it, we, you know, we need two functioning parties. And I don't want to see my party split into two pieces, but, you know, but we've become this very ideologically diverse party on one side. And I, and I wish the public better understood that because this gets framed as there's so much partisanness in Washington and the Dems are in disarray, which is a little bit inconsistent. Either the Dems are ideologically consistent and it's become partisan <laughs> or the Dems have all this diversity and the other side has become very partisan. I would suggest the latter is more true. I also really wish some of our presidential candidates would recognize that the way that we <clears throat> stitched together a majority was by winning the middle, um, not by running to the left, but that's a separate conversation. So all of that is to hopefully give you some sense on what's going on. I want to chat a little bit before opening up for questions about what I've been doing because I'm not on the Intelligence Committee, I'm not on the Foreign Affairs Committee, I'm not on the Judicial Committee, I was not one of the impeachment managers, but I, but I have been really busy. <laughs> um, the, uh, um, you know, my, my top priorities, you know, have been prior to this job, climate change, and continue to be in this job. And, and essentially trying to get, trying to really change the narrative and get my colleagues on both sides of the aisle to recognize that the, the way we've been talking about climate change for 40 years is almost exactly wrong. The, we've framed climate change as a how will we possibly allocate the pain problem, and in reality it's a, it's a how do we equitably allocate the gain. Anything you do, for all practical purposes, to lower CO2 emissions is going to save you money um, because you're, you're replacing a, a 1950s fully amortized high marginal cost piece of infrastructure with a 2020s brand new needs to be amortized low zero marginal cost piece of infrastructure. That's true if you're replacing your Dodge Dart with a Tesla. That's true if you're replacing a coal plant with a solar plant. And we frame this because of the weird way that Washington talks about finance as a cost. But anywhere else in the world we'd say, well, that's, that's an investment actually, right? You're putting up capital and have lower costs. And we have these challenges that that creates because number one, um, how should we equitably allocate that through society? So we've, we've got an issue right now where electricity prices are falling faster than the cost of capital in new generation because we keep installing zero marginal cost generators. 
And, and so you're seeing a whole bunch of, I think arguably what's happening to Exelon in Illinois is because they're getting squeezed because all of this solar, all of this wind, all of this stuff is knocking off things like coal, things like inefficient gas that used to set the marginal price of power. And so we're now seeing power prices fall, and 100% of that benefit so far has really flowed to consumers, which is awesome if you're a consumer. But we really need to have a conversation about how do we equitably make sure that we still have an investment thesis to, to invest in these assets. That's a good problem to have. But we haven't talked about it because we haven't had an allocate the, the, uh, the gain conversation. So that's part of what I've been trying to do. Um, part of it is... Um, is also trying to get folks to understand that you really can't talk about climate science without talking about energy policy, and you can't talk about energy policy without talking about capital markets. And within both Congress and even at the staff level, there are very few people who have experience in more than one of those verticals. And so we end up with a conversation where we don't really know where our blind spots are, um, and you, you see it in all these interesting ways. You know, I, I, you know I've, I've gotten to know Ernie Moniz a little bit, who's a really, really smart guy, really, really good at physics. Um, he has some, some ideas about what we should do on climate that I think are a little bit crazy because they're not really informed by how energy markets are deploying capital right now, but they're interesting in a physical sense. Um, we have on the other side... Um, I, I was in one of the hearings when we had, when I had uh, Chairman Powell in, I said, you know, we, we had a science hearing where we were told by scientists that if we eliminate all CO2 tomorrow, no more CO2 emissions, because all of these climate effects are lagging, I, I asked these scientists, I said, what's the, how much sea level rise is already baked into the system if we went to zero CO2 tomorrow? And this woman said, two feet at least, probably more than a meter. And I said, okay, at that level, what's the top two or three cities you're really concerned about? And she said, the entire eastern seaboard. That's within, within this century. And so when we then had Chairman Powell in, and I said, okay, Fannie and Freddie are in receivership. There's people signing 30-year mortgages today in Miami Beach. There's people signing 30-year mortgages today in Denver. Do you think that they should have differential rates so that capital can sort of flow appropriately to these differential pieces? And he said, you know, that's a really good question. We should think about it. Um, he's not a dumb guy, right? But his knowledge is in another vertical that doesn't spread over on the other side. And we're having some fun. We've got a, a bill right now that uh, I've been leading in the House and, and Senator Schatz is leading in the Senate to essentially say we really, if you have $900 billion of property loss that you can see coming in the absence of action, we should think about climate change as a systemic risk in the banking sector because what we know is coming is bigger than subprime. We don't know the timing, but we should be thinking about it and we should be factoring it in. And, uh, and it's, it's fun to be able to have the opportunity to do that, but trying to push that. The, the, last, the last big thing that I've been trying to push on climate is, um, and then I'll open up for questions, is that in, in many ways we have, we have made some significant progress on the conversation about climate in the last three or four years. Because when I was going to D.C., you know, but because, because I was passionate about this, let's be honest, because I had a dog in the hunt in the clean energy space, what I would consistently find in meeting with members of Congress and their staffs was some variant of, that's interesting, Kasten, but this problem is really too complicated to act as quickly as you're saying we should act. And that, that view is, is, if we maintain it, is suicidal. 
the thanks to the rise of a lot of the youth activism and the climate strikes and I think you know the Greta Thunbergs of the world we're now coming to appreciate the urgency of the problem and the fear I have is that we're we are at the risk right now of going from this problem is too complicated to get bogged down in urgency to this problem is too urgent to get bogged down in complexity both of those are suicidal because um, we don't have time to get this wrong and we're on the select climate committee we'll see if I prevail but <clears throat> we were having this conversation the other day about what should we say we're, we're providing this report that will be released sometime probably end of March to Congress about what we should do on, on climate and we're having this question about should we should we take a firm position that we need to be zero net carbon by 2050 should we take a firm position that we need to be zero net carbon by some other year Here's what all the presidential candidates are saying. Here's what the Green New Deal said. Here's what various you know, IPCC reports have said. We will be compared to that. What should we say? And, and I said, you know, if, if I'm writing the report, we should say we should be zero carbon by 1985. Because that's the last time that atmospheric CO2 concentrations was at a level that's actually sustainable for our species. And that would be a scientifically formed view. That would be a view that's actually consistent with a lot of our recommendations because we're not just saying get to net zero. We're saying we've got we to gotta have conversations about you know, everything from changes in agricultural practices to direct air capture to actually get back to a sustainable level. And I think that would change the conversation. It's a little hard to have that because then we have to admit that maybe we're not perfect. Um, I mean, I, I am. You know. <laughs> <laughs> But that's a hard conversation. But can we kind of elevate it to say, yeah, it's urgent, but we got to understand that this is a really complicated problem and we gotta, we got to move quick to get it. So um, it is a pleasure to serve. It is a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be in this room. And, uh, and Jackie said, are there any questions you don't want? And I said, no, this is – that took a year of improv. Throw it at me. So, <laughs> so thank you so much. And whatever questions you got. What he missed was that even though I said, are there any questions you don't want, I asked them also. Um, I don't know, I I don't know how you guys did in science, but a lot of you guys are climate change people, so you probably did really well. I passed science because of a guy who is named Lance Taylor. He's a doctor, a dentist actually, um, and I passed because of him. So when you said that's exactly wrong, I just remember my science teacher saying to me, well, Jackie, that's exactly wrong. (laughs) So all that came back to me was that it was exactly wrong. (laughs) Thank God for Lance. So if Lance, you're in Springfield and you're watching, thank you for getting me through science. We've got a ton of questions and a handful that just came in that I have not read yet. Um, I'm going to start with... Um, oh, and I wanted to say one other thing. He made a comment and said that he, um, of course, is perfect. At least you're not the only one in Washington who feels that way about yourself. So, you know. Just saying. The call was perfect. Yeah, the call was perfect. It was perfect. Uh, <laughs> So there are quite a few people uh, that have turned in their questions that aren't City Club members. Uh, Yeah, 50 bucks. (laughs) Just saying again. Um, And uh, I don't know about the chocolate mousse cake. I thought only Stella's table got that, but it turns out everybody got it today. So wasn't it great? For those of you who don't come often, we don't often get that, so... Thank you, staff. Thank you, Magianos. I don't know who did that, but it was good. So Malcolm Kamen, 
is from the law offices of Malcolm Kamen. Are you here, Malcolm? Be glad, because if you weren't here, sometimes I don't ask your question. So, but you look like a kind gentleman. So, Is there any plausible scientific explanation for the rising acidity level of the oceans other than man-made carbon emissions? No. <laughs> Is that a bit really? No. Um, the... So first, I got to just tell a joke because you said that was exactly wrong. I keep waiting to have a, a hearing where I really want to use that Wolfgang Pauli put down. You know, when he, he said to a student, "Your answer is so bad, it's not even wrong." <laughs> <laughs> um, That's good. Um, no, look, the ocean acidification is because the CO two level is up in the atmosphere, and the oceans absorb CO two. And you should be hugely thankful that they do because there is way more CO2 that's been absorbed into the oceans than is in the atmosphere right now, and the planet would be a heck of a lot hotter but for that absorption. What it also means, and this is just, it's just math, but it's frightening, is that if you agree with me that we need to get back to 1985 atmospheric CO2 levels, that really means we have to go to about 1975, because as we drop the CO2 in the atmosphere, the partial pressure of the air changes, and the oceans will start releasing the CO2 that's currently in there. So lowering CO2 emissions will deacidify the oceans, will help restore the coral reefs, but also means that we have to take out not just the CO2 in the atmosphere, but a good chunk of what's been absorbed by the oceans. And the problem is harder than it looks. Wow. <clears throat> so thank you. This is such a... Um bright and happy topic that we're talking about today. So, Suzanne Malik McKenna, you've got to be in heaven right about now, aren't you? Just happy here. Um, she had a wonderful program about a week and a half ago. Did you all see the hawk and the mm-hmm. eagle? Was it an eagle? A hawk and an owl. Yeah. Notice I wasn't in the room. They had big, long wings and they were flying in here. Yeah. But anyway, it's a great program. So Susanna says, fighting, she's from the organization Fighting for a Meaningful Regional Climate Strategy. Christina, is it Figueres? Mm-hmm. Um, you already know this question? Mm-hmm. No, no. Oh, I was like, okay. don't make me stand up here and read the question if you already know it. The key climate negotiator who played a pivotal role in negotiating Paris climate in 2015 is upbeat about fighting climate change as moving towards a much better life for our nation and for our world. Are you upbeat? Let's talk about the potential. So I'm... I'm I am as upbeat about the, about the potential as I am sort of pessimistic on the political moment, and that's good because you can solve the political moment. If I was, if I was downbeat about the potential, it would be really bad. The, if you look around, and there's a little fun exercise. Some of you have probably heard me say this before. When you go home, just sort of start pulling up government data sites, and you can pull the energy use by every country in the world, and you can pull the GDP of every country in the world. <clears throat> Pull the two numbers, put them together, divide one by the other, rank all, the rank, rank all the countries in that list, and then look at how they scatter. And what you'll find is that those countries whose economies are, are dependent on resource extraction, the Saudi Arabias, the Qatars, for completely unsurprising reasons, they have very high energy use per dollar GDP. Um, those countries that are not blessed with huge domestic energy reserves have designed their economies around how to be as efficient as they can at converting raw materials into finished goods and services, places like Japan. Um, They're much higher on that list. 
And what it says is that moving countries from the bottom of that list to the top of that list, and, and I'm leaving out sort of, I'm just, for the purpose of this, this sort of intellectual exercise, just, just focus on the first world countries. So we're not talking about the differences between, you know, not having access to water, but also those countries that have the biggest impact on CO2. Moving from the bottom of that list to the top of that list um, is a decision to lower your CO2 emissions and make you more wealthy. Right? Less CO2 per dollar GDP. The United States is vastly closer to Qatar than we are to Japan. And there's and and we're slightly better than China, but not by much. And so what that means is as the largest historic emitter and the largest current emitter, if we just acted out of our own self-interest and said we're gonna make a commitment to be as good as Switzerland we could cut our CO2 emissions by probably 70%. That is awesome. It's a fantastic opportunity. But what it also means is like to, to start and think, all right, well, why aren't we doing it, right? Why aren't we acting in our own self-interest? And a lot of it is a legacy of policy decisions that were made for other reasons but don't get added up. I don't know if you guys saw, Forbes had a report last week that the IMF has just estimated that the total U.S., just U.S., direct and indirect subsidies to the fossil fuel industry is $560 billion per year. That's almost a TARP a year, right? You know, the, the stimulus and the bailout act. Well, that means that we are, that we're in a world where the reality is that if you look at our collective pocketbook, not my pocketbook, your pocketbook, not even the federal pocketbook, but our collective pocketbook, we will be massively more wealthy if we take those subsidies away and allow people to pursue their own economic self-interest. That's an amazing opportunity. Um, now, it turns out that it's a little hard to take away $500 billion of subsidies. Um, you know, as I like to say about Washington, you got no power if you got nothing to lose. Right? Um, but it's a heck of an opportunity for us to focus on it because if we do that, we've number one, we've gotten a long way there. Number two, you know, we need to go deeper than 70% to be clear. But if we can get 70% of the way done and create wealth, we got the funding to cover the hard part that follows. Um, so, so I think you know, politically, we have to figure out how to solve the political problem. But um, political laws are easier to change than thermodynamic laws, in my experience. Wow. I'm going to combine two questions here, speaking of political climate. Um, <clears throat> Joe Moore, former Chicago Alderman Joe Moore, um, says, what effect do you believe the Democrat, um, Democratic nominee will have on your ability to win re-election? That's the first part of the question. And then the second one is, Miss um, Terry, are you here? Retired federal judiciary? Hi. Um, if... Illinois loses a congressional seat after the census. Which part of the state will that be? So can you talk about how you feel about the re-election and your chances with the nominee, and then what Illinois, um, what seat do you think Illinois might lose? Um, Easy stuff. The, uh, you, you do realize I only have a year's worth of experience in this job. <laughs> um, you know, I think I alluded to the first question in my opening comments. We... The, the Democratic majority was won and has been maintained through this Congress by, by virtue of the 40 of us who flipped seats. And, you know, in, in just about every one of the presidential candidates that I've met with, I've not met with all of them, but I've met with most of them, 
I've said to all of them, you know, I would really appreciate it if at the next debate one of you would say, you know what I'm going to do in my first 100 days? I'm going to pass the Equality Act. I'm going to let Medicare negotiate with pharmaceutical prices. I'm going to pass um, campaign finance reform. I'm going to pass universal background checks on guns. And you know why I'm going to do that? Because the House already passed it, and we showed that when you put people in elected office who actually care about government, who represent the will of the majority of the American people, that's what you get, and I'm going to do it. They would then send a message to all of us in Congress that we're not going to spend the first 100 days in a fight. And I, and I, do, have, I do have significant concerns that if the... If the narrative going into this election is that we we need to push the Democratic, this sort of massive ideological diversity of the Democratic Party and say, you people are bad, these people are good, we're going to alienate a lot of the middle, um, you know, what it will do for my election, I don't know, we'll figure that out. But I, but I do think it's a way to um, certainly put a number of the congressional gains at risk. Um, and create a lot of infighting. And look, you know, at the at the end of the Nixon era, we got one term of Carter. Right? I mean, if you're if you're being partisan about it, I'm not. I think Reagan is a very different Republican than the current Republican leadership. But there should be, if you believe that democracy matters, if you believe that we need to get back to two functioning parties, we need to get we need to get someone who can do more than win just one term, and then and then lose the majority in Congress that had been there for a long time for what thirty years. Um, and I hope it happens. As to your second question, I have no idea. Um, I think if we, it's a very different answer. If Mitch McConnell decided to take up and pass HR one, this campaign finance reform bill that we passed. It also has within it um, money to flow to all the states to do fair election maps, in which case the maps will flow in the way that a fair mapper would design it rather than to gerrymander. I kind of doubt McConnell's going to do that. Um, I think McConnell said when we passed HR1 that it was a Democratic power grab, and I thought, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm big on democracy. Um, the you know in the absence of that <clears throat> I don't know it probably depends on probably depends on the win margins in the next election right um, if you know if if you've got people like me and Lauren winning by big margins and you know and you know what what happens to the Rodney Davis seat with Betsy Dirksen Lundergan running you've probably got different questions of of how a completely democratically controlled legislature thinks about squeezing that out than if Lauren or I loses or Betsy doesn't win and how you sort of squeeze that out differently I don't know the answer to that and I'm not I'm not smart enough to do that kind of machine politics math but in my ideal world we'll do this in a fair way rather than in a let's let's accrue to the benefit of one party way even though that benefit would probably accrue to me um nick Cas Castubasis from DePaul and Aaron Baines you have wonderful handwriting um, he's kind of covered your questions so don't you think I'm not getting to um, Barry Babart are you here? so Barry's question is a little tough um, you're not a city club member? Oh. just saying um this is a tougher question, so um, the, one of the things that we do at City Club is we make sure that we ask questions, even the tough ones. Um, in the U.S., persons and prescribed are prescribed innocent until proven guilty and allowed to face their accusers and can cross-examine witnesses. In the impeachment trial, some fellow Democrats abandoned these legal terms in his opinion. 
can you please explain the abandonment of the rule of law and the Constitution to the audience? I know you've only been yeah, in this job for well, a minute, sure. but you know. Uh, so I, I think it's a, I think it's a false analogy. You know, an, an impeachment is not a criminal trial. Um, and, and our founders didn't say it was a criminal trial. They didn't say this is subject to the U.S. criminal code, because let's be honest, there was no U.S. criminal code at the time the Constitution was written. Um, and the penalty if you're impeached is not that you go to jail, you don't even have to pay a fine. You arguably have the easiest penalty in the world, which is that you can never be president again. Right? That's a, that's a pretty light penalty in the grand scheme of things. Um, and so... The, every impeachment in history has conducted and according to its own set of rules, we adopted the identical rules to the rules that were used against Clinton. So there is no credible argument that we did something different, with one exception. And this is, this is a very problematic exception. In the Clinton impeachments and in the Nixon impeachments, prior to the impeachment process starting, there was a special prosecutor, special counsel, at different terms at different times, that conducted essentially what a, what a normal prosecutor would do when you want to make sure that witnesses can't coordinate, and you have closed-door meetings, and then there was a report that was released saying, these were my findings. When, when Starr released his report on Clinton, he released his report, he then directed all of the grand jury testimony to be unredacted so that the Congress got all of the information that he'd referred to various grand juries as a result. And he released about 300,000 pages of supporting documents so that when Congress was then deciding what to do next, they had all of that stuff that came out. When the Mueller report was released, if you recall, Barr sat on it. Um, he released a memo that misrepresented what was in the Mueller report, left out key parts of sentences. We still have not seen multiple parts of the original 400 pages that came out because they were redacted, and we still have not seen any of the underlying documents. And the Mueller report, of course, is actually not any of the basis for the impeachment. The basis for the impeachment was the, was the, 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 the call with Ukraine, which triggered that off. And Attorney General Barr... Um, very publicly said he didn't think that was worthy of an investigation. And so what we did as Congress was essentially to do what historically the special prosecutor has done, which was in the first instance we went through, we, I, I wasn't in the room, this was the Intelligence Committee, this was under very tight classified security, that said we're going to have witnesses come in and testify before us and we're not going to make their testimony public until we've heard all the witnesses because we don't want them to be able to coordinate their stories. So that was essentially what the special prosecutor done in prior cases. All of that testimony was subsequently released to the public. And when the, when the hearings then started, the president um, was invited that he was free to participate. He was free to have his counsel participate. And he chose not to participate. Um, the questions that were asked, both, you, you cannot have any secrets in Congress. It's unfortunate, but you can't have any secrets um, because you can't do something on a committee without all the members of the committee knowing, regardless of their partisan affiliation. So all the questions that were asked, there were Republicans who asked questions, there were Republicans who selected witnesses, they could participate. And they have, they lied to the American public. They lied that they didn't have access. They did. They stormed the skiff in what was basically childish, pretending that they didn't have access. They did. They got to pick witnesses. They got to cross-examine their witnesses. They didn't like the truth. That's their problem. So 
there was no question but that everybody was given a fair trial under the context of our founders intended and under the context of what Clinton got, except for the fact that we had to take some special provisions at the start because the Attorney General did not decide that it was his responsibility to protect the Constitution of the United States, and so we had to. And I'm proud of the decisions we made. Thank you, sir. Bridget Degnan, are you in the room? I didn't see you. Hi. Um, do you have <clears throat> suggestions for local, city, and county um, laws that have passed will reduce climate, will reduce, I really can read, that will reduce the effects of climate change? So I have the great advantage. I get this question all the time, and usually when I answer this question, everyone's like, I don't know what you're talking about, so I'll just give you my stock answer. Have you met Suzanne Malek McKenna? (laughs) Um, And I mean that, because uh, she's the person you need to talk to. There are, number one, like the work that Suzanne is doing with all the, the Metropolitan Mayor's Council of coordinating it, but number two, since the U.S. is effectively not leading right now, you know, when I was in Madrid with the Paris Climate Conference, we, we as the, you know, we as the members of the House and Sheldon Whitehouse who went, were representing the United States because the executive branch wasn't present. And there are all these conversations going on about how we are going to solve an international problem, and the U.S. isn't at the table. And so as the cities have taken a leadership role in that, there's these basic questions that we really need to harmonize between cities and municipalities, but also within the context of international agreements, like how are we going to deal with carbon accounting? If you buy, if, if, if you buy power from a wind farm downstate, do you get credit for the, the CO2 reduction, or does, the, does where it was generated get credit? And how do we make sure that that's all accounted in some ledger that doesn't double count going through? Um, how do we make sure that a commitment for a given entity to, to reduce, eliminate their carbon footprint when aggregated across all entities is actually coherent across the whole boundary of that, which, which turns out to be really tricky because there are some municipalities saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a whole bunch of changes around those assets I control, my buildings, my vehicle fleet. Um, but most of the carbon footprint of Chicago is in private buildings and private vehicles and you know, the issues around zoning and building codes. And how do you pull all that together and harmonize it in a way that everybody fits together so that you, the sum is actually equal to the sum of the individual parts? Um, and, and a lot of that stuff is out there. A lot of that stuff is what's happening in places within the Paris context right now, but we're not there. And so there's a real need for, for cities and municipalities to do the good work that Suzanne is doing to harmonize this so that when the adults are back in charge, we can, we can try to make sure that people who have made these commitments are, are tied in. And, and by the way, you're, you're tied into Paris whether you like it or not because you know, our trading partners are in Paris. Um, some of the carbon markets we have in the U.S., like the California carbon market, is trading with Ontario. Ontario is subject to Paris. So all these things already fit together anyway, and so we've got to harmonize them and, um, like I said, follow up and, and get coordinated if you're not on how to, how to make all that work together. So, John Orlick, your question was kind of sort of answered. Are you in the room? Not here? Okay. Um, so I didn't realize it was this late. We're just going to take one more. There are so many good questions in here. Um, lots of good questions. But we will... Um, Kay Whitlock, I was going to ask yours, but I think... Oh, where'd the question go? Okay. Sandra Hamilton, are you here? 
Council General of Ireland? Sure. Hello. Um, Illinois residents obviously obvi oblivious to the harm they're causing with SUVs, same-day deliveries, Uber, etc. Um, how do we educate and change the behavior? And I'm going to make that the last question just because there's so many good questions, but I know we need to be respectful of your time and, and the congressman's. Um, I love the question. I don't have a good answer, but maybe we can collectively decide how to answer this as we go out. The, I, was, I was recently chatting with, with my mayor in Downers Grove, and he, he uh, I don't think he has Mayor Barnett, no. Um, he, uh, he was saying to me that, that one of the conversations he feels like we need to have as a community and also as a nation is that we, we made this commitment years ago to reduce, reuse, recycle. And we've, we've so prioritized recycling that people have ignored the first two. And he said, if you look at sort of what's flowing in the landfills right now, the you know if I can if I can buy 15 pairs of shoes from Zappos, not pay for the shipping, and then send back the 14 I don't like, and then come out and say, hey, good news, I recycled my shoebox. <laughs> you know we've 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 sort of blessed ourselves with magic pixie dust that's not very realistic, and and I th I think there is a larger conversation we need to have both you know both you know to get into the national zeitgeist but also to his point what's what's the right thing for a community to do because at some point and i'm not saying that this is his recommendation it's just it's an interesting philosophical question at at some point you could probably make the argument that we should ease back on recycling just to force people to sort of say okay if you're going to be a if you're going to be a good public steward and take credit for your actions you're going to need to have, we need to have some way for you to think about your entire footprint, not just what you take out to the curb on Monday mornings. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's exactly the right question to ask and to start thinking about how to, how to have that conversation. Wow. So I'm sure we could talk to him for another hour on climate change. Uh, this is Congressman's first time speaking here, right? Yeah.